typically when someone says portfolio loan, what they mean is that the bank themselves will actually hold that loan in-house. And why that's relevant and important is because they will take, uh, typically when a normal home loan is done, the bank will take that loan, package it up, sell it off, and then charge a servicing fee to whoever the new buyer of that loan is. And that's how the banks generate their money. They can take a small profit now, live to fight another day, and then retain servicing fees. And then companies that they sell those to, they'll package them up into what are called RMBSs or residential mortgage-backed securities. And that's how we got the 2008 financial crisis. Welcome everyone to the podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Blake Selby. Blake is uh, based out of Iowa. He's the owner of selbyrentals.com and he is a real estate investor, uh, a, a private lender and is, is scaling across five or six states already at this point. So as always, uh, we think there's gonna be a, a good bit of value here in this episode and I've got a ton of questions. So first off, let's welcome him to the show. Blake, how you doing? Thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm great, man. No complaints. Uh, at least none that, that you want to hear or the audience wants to hear, right? <laughs> exactly. So you're, you're, you're one of the kind of serial entrepreneurs, it appears, right, that so often end up on the show. Um, and you're, you're doing a good bit of, of private lending and real estate investing. But before we jump into today, uh, I'm curious, uh, are you born and raised out in Iowa? Born and raised in northern Michigan, actually, which isn't too far from where I live now. So most people from Michigan don't even know, uh, you know, how far away Iowa is. But the eastern Iowa portion that I live in, Davenport, Iowa, which is the Quad Cities, is actually only about uh, seven hours away from where I grew up in northern Michigan. So, um, you know, just happens to be the part of Iowa I'm in isn't too far away. But uh, grew up northern Michigan, graduated from Michigan State, and then moved out here immediately after. And then when you moved out, from what I understand, you you didn't go right into real estate. You owned nope. a gym at some point, right? Yep. Uh, immediately uh, did the gym thing. My degree was in kinesiology, so exercise science. Um, and I had done, uh, back then I did personal training and different things throughout college and um, even parts of high school. So, and I had done some competitions and different things for, uh, you know, weightlifting and things. So yeah, it was a good, uh, good thing for me to do the gym, taught me the, the fundamentals of business. And then uh, I was able to parlay a lot of that into the real estate sphere. So did you keep the, the gym or did you sell out or what, what did you do there? Yeah, I sold the gym and that was sort of the catalyst for me to really get serious in real estate. I got some some good money on the uh, gym sale and that allowed me to parlay into a strip center. And then from there, I, um, you know, used that uh, to move into a lot of other properties as well. Okay, so how does someone uh, take the leap from, you know, fitness and, and, and gym to, to real estate? Were there any influences as you were younger? Were you around real estate or how did that happen? Yeah, my grandfather was uh, the head real estate buyer for Ford Motor Company, all of it. And so he, um, you know, he obviously, uh, I heard growing up as a kid, I listened to a lot of the conversations. And so um, listening to him, that was a huge influence. And it's something I guess you were interested in. And, and just as that opportunity presented itself, you made the shift. Yeah, I, I saw it as how can I uh, do something where I can set myself up to have residual income without having to uh, work more hours or should be showing up all the time. And I didn't love the idea of stocks um, as a singular investment because of the you know fluctuation of the market. 
um, when I was in college, that was right when 2008 uh, had happened. And so um, I saw the stress that my family went through. Uh, my father had a business that really got stressed by the 2008 uh, recession. And so I said, oh boy, I don't know if I want to uh, trust all my money, um, you know, that I make to saving in stocks and things. So I said, well, why don't I try uh, something that's a little more grounded, something that, you know, can't, can't go to zero, like real estate, or if it does go to zero, we've got bigger problems. <laughs> so right. so um, the connection between uh, realtors and agents and passive income, believe it or not, is, is, is not made uh, as often as it should be. Uh, so my guess is you, what you were trying to do is eliminate trading time for money, right? So if you're in the gym business and you're there, uh, and we experience this on the consulting side, uh, it doesn't matter how good you are at it. You're limited by time, right? right. As much time as you can lend to that particular endeavor is what you can be compensated. So exactly. even when you're, you excel at it, and we've done a really good job in the consulting world and and you're able to get paid more and more over time, you're still bound by the amount of hours that you can allocate to any particular project. So, um, and stop me at any point if I'm off base, but I would imagine you saw this as a chance to say, you know what, I can replace X percent of that income that I was pulling from the gym by buying a shopping center, right? Uh, or a strip center. Uh, and you, you had your formula and you figured, okay, uh, X amount has to go down. I want a cash on cash return and on that ultimately, but, but I wanted to have access to every month. We call it mailbox money, right? The money is there. Um, it's don't get me wrong, folks. Owning a, a retail strip center is not as easy as Blake and I are as you know, so in such a glib manner, we're like, yeah, we'll trade time for, for real estate. It, it, it's a science and there's a lot of different things you can do to win between the lines in all of these different uh, typologies, but it's a great way to assure yourself or reasonably assure yourself uh, X amount of dollars a month, right? From your tenants. And you saw that as a way to replace some of the income from the gym. Was that the, the blueprint for you? Absolutely. I saw the passive income as a necessity for me if I was ever gonna get ahead. And it, I wanted it to be something that was scalable, something that I could scale up. The problem with a lot of you know local banks and things when somebody gets started is that they doing methods such as the Burr method and other um, popular methods. The local banks on paper those methods like Burr and all these other methods work, but some people think that you can just sort of form a human centipede of houses and just keep burring the same amount of money through a hundred houses. And while in the you know the olden days you used to be able to do that, most local banks will have a cap on how often you can do that. Um, they're gonna you know have limits on how far you can go with that. So it's not as though you can just buy a house, refi it, use that money to buy the next one, refi it, keep making money the whole way through, and then all of a sudden have a hundred houses that have you know bank money. That that's not how it works nowadays. So um, and I know this because we made uh, we aggregated. Um, like 40 different uh, banks in my area. In my area, we have 400,000 people in the greater area. So it's not a small area. And we went ahead and aggregated like 40 of these banks. And we pretty much picked their brains on what, what are they doing? Portfolio loans? Are they selling to Fannie and Freddie? What's the limits? What's, what are the thresholds? And what we found is that some of those uh, methods are very limiting. And I was very fortunate to have uh, an individual who did portfolio loans, um, uh, you know, early on in my career, he was actually a member of my gym. He loaned me a million dollars out the gate and that was huge. 
So that gave me the explosive, you know, money that I needed to move forward. But if you're just going one at a time, that's a very linear growth mode. Whereas I wanted something exponential. How can I scale this and get, you know, huge? So once we sort of maxed out what we could do with the banks, we uh, lent, we leaned on the uh, seller financing uh, portion to acquire more and more and more packages and units, um, which I then, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but I uh, parlayed into about a 320 plus unit portfolio that I owned. And then I sold off 200 of them, paid off the remaining hundred and however many I still have. And then also had seven figures to loan out. And so that's private lending, how that kind of came about for me. So. All right. So we covered a lot of ground there. What, what yeah. Lake is referencing uh, folks is the Burr method. Uh, it's buy, rehab, um, refinance, rent, refinance, right? Yep. Is that all of the R's? Is it rinse, uh, rinse, be, refinance? Refi- I mean, we'll just uh, add more R's. It'll be, real, it'll be really cold. Burr, you know? So, <laughs> on paper, as he's referencing, uh, it, it's, it is a great model, right? You get in, you acquire the property, you fix it up, you rent it, it stabilizes, you refinance, you pull your cash out, plus you move on to the next project. But what they don't necessarily tell you on all these go become a millionaire programs is you are amassing debt, right? Unless you're doing seller financing uh, institutions, no matter how good your credit is, no matter how good your, how much money you have in the bank, you hit a point where they go, you have 20 mortgages, right? Like you're, you're, you're no longer meet our criteria and it doesn't matter uh, what your balance sheet looks like at that point, they're just not gonna lend anymore. Uh, so Blake, you had referenced earlier portfolio loans. Would, would you expand on that for the audience just to let them know what you're, you're referencing? So typically when someone says portfolio loan, what they mean is that the bank themselves will actually hold that loan in-house. And why that's relevant and important is because they will take, uh, typically when a normal home loan is done, they, the bank will take that loan, package it up, sell it off, and then charge a servicing fee to whoever the new buyer of that loan is. And that's how the banks generate their money. They can take a small profit now, uh, live to fight another day, and then retain servicing fees. And then companies that they sell those two, they'll package them up into what are called RMBSs or residential mortgage-backed securities. And that's how we got the 2008 financial crisis. I way oversimplified that process. Um, but that's, so what you want to find, you want to avoid where they just sell it off because their requirements are going to be a lot more stringent and less flexible for you as an investor. Portfolio lenders, they'll allow you to do things like skip appraisals. I just did a, a series of uh, loans up until this point, up until literally this week, I had no loans. And so now I got an offer that I just couldn't refuse because the interest rate's stupid. It's down in the threes and, you know, for, with no appraisals, I'm like, come on now, you know? So um, they're going to do basically a a BPO, which is their opinion of value without charging me anything for it. So uh, which is great. And so you can do things that are way more flexible like that. I don't have to disturb the tenants. They don't have to go into the properties. Um, So, you know, they're going to give me a quick half a mil just, you know, doing a, a BPO's type uh, format. And then I can have my money in the threes and I'm going to use that to leverage it out and do some other stuff. And then I'll boomerang it back and pay it off at a later uh, date. But um, I've already got seven figures in cash. And so I'm going to use that additional money to loan out. I like to keep seven figures in cash because um, it gives me a huge amount of uh, purchasing power whenever I need to run in and grab a big pack of houses and just jet in and jet out. So, so um People don't don't quite get this uh, as as they shouldn't. I guess they're not in the business. But when when you're going to a bank um, and you're 
going through all of the, the crazy things that you need to go through to secure a mortgage, many, many times those are not necessarily the bank's requirements. These are the requirements of the folks who buy the paper behind the banks, right? So it, it, what may seem like a trivial thing if, as you're going through the mortgage process, you think you can color a little bit outside the lines and they sell these things in big, big, big packages and the, you, you literally can't color outside the lines. That's the whole point of, of purchasing the portfolios. And then uh, as, a, as a homeowner or a property owner, you get these notices, your mortgage has been sold, your mortgage has been transferred, right? That's them packaging and selling, packaging and selling, packaging and selling. So what Blake is talking about here is when they keep it in-house and they don't have that additional layer of many layers of requirements that they have to meet to sell it on the secondary market, it's typically a, a, a nice, easy process. It's internal underwriting requirements. They can color outside the lines a bit, right? Uh, and it makes it just infinitely easier to do. So the next natural question, Blake, is how do you find someone that's willing to do portfolio loans, right? Yeah, so when we aggregated all of those you know, banks, we basically you know, looked up every bank in our area figured out, uh, when I say we, my staff and I, and we figured out, okay, which of these banks are doing, you could just call and ask, you know, and if the gal, you know, that answers the phone or whatever, the teller doesn't know, then, you know, they'll get you to someone else who might know, um, but just keep asking, hey, do you guys do in-house or portfolio loans? And they'll tell you, you know, if they do or don't um, and what they offer. So most, most of the bankers know what that means. So there's no substitute for hard work, right? Uh, there probably is, but every time I every time I try to substitute the hard work portion, it seems to it seems to get a lesser result. So, no doubt, no doubt. So you're you're now lending um, in six states, yes? I think we're up to more than that now, but it, it's at least six. Yeah, we're so we got we got Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, uh, Florida. We're doing Missouri, and well, that's seven right there. So. And then I've got other ones too. When I think we're doing one in Ohio. Yeah, Ohio, I've got two loans there. And then uh, we're working on one in Arkansas. Yeah, we're, we're pushing 10. So, so uh, could you give us a sample or an idea of, of what type of appetite you guys are looking for when you lend? You know, what is the deal? Yeah. Look like? So for me, especially in this uh, economic cycle that we're in, uh, for your listeners who maybe aren't familiar with economic cycles, Every so often we have a rise in the economy and a dip. That's just how it goes. That's how it's always gone. It's not to say that it always will, but that's how it's gone for the last hundred years. So um, I look for patterns. So if you look 1987, we had a big crash. Then it went up and then the dot-com bubble, boom, another crash, 2001, September 11th. Okay, now went up, went up, went up, 2007, you know, 2008 crash. You know, now it's gone up again. Some people say pandemic was a crash. That's that's a blip. That was just a blip. That wasn't a crash. So we were due pre-pandemic, we were due for a massive market correction by all metrics, um, Warren Buffett index and all these other metrics. I'm not just talking about stocks, but just the market in general. Um, what the market we're in right now mirrors pre-2008. It mirrors 2007, not because of the residential mortgage-backed securities, but every other type of investment. We have more investors lending, uh, leveraging margin in the stock market right now. We have about 10 times the margin leverage that we had in 2007, which is very scary. You've got uh, people who predicted the 2008 crash like Dr. Michael Burry 
um, predicting that we're going to have a 95% stock market crash. Now, I don't believe that. I think that's way out there. But uh, with that being said, you've got inflation fears, you've got all this instability. We've, you know, we've now marked the 50th anniversary of, of us being off of the gold standard. President Nixon and, uh, you know, 50 years ago pulled us off the gold standard officially uh, for our fiat currency, which we have our U.S. dollars. So with all of those things going into the soup, I think that we're at least due for a correction here soon. And because it's just been so long since we had the last one and the PE ratios and everything else is just crazy right now. So with that being said, when I do loans now, I'm typically loaning at half the value of the asset or less. And the reason is, is because I don't want to be underwater when the next crash comes because everyone in 2007 that was in my shoes, they were lending up higher and higher and higher just because they couldn't get loans otherwise. And I find that for the right customer, they, what I'm offering is just perfect. So I'm a little bit of a niche, but um, I want to be safe in the event that we have um, some kind of an economic correction. I'm not a doomsdayer. I don't believe that we're going to have an apocalyptic event that we all need to be uh, getting crossbows and rice and beans for, right? But at the same token, I'm looking at this going, holy moly, I'm watching people buy some of the dumbest stuff I've ever seen at higher prices than I've ever seen. And going, wow, this looks a lot like 2007. And, you know, in 2008, we had a 30% market correction. You know, that's possible again. I mean, we're, we're way past 2007 levels now. So. Yeah, I don't think it's possible. I think it's guaranteed. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be. And, and, and who knows when it'll be. It might be in five years. I don't know. But I certainly, I certainly don't want to be uh, caught with my pants down uh, when that happens. So uh, Look, I applaud you, uh, first of all, for being this candid. Sure. Uh, we, we talk to a lot of people in the business and uh, very few folks are willing to go down the rabbit hole. And I'm, I'm glad that you are because this is what I believe people need to hear. Of course. Uh, enough cheerleader stuff going on out there. Yeah. Um, there are realities to these markets. And, you know, we're, we're a bit of a, a student of the markets ourselves. And we're we agree that we're at a point, you know, we're back in 2006 because I'm, I'm on the deal-making side, at least I was then. Um, you see things a few cycles before they report, right? Because the real estate cycle takes so long. Right. Uh, we're seeing some of those cracks and we've been seeing some of those cracks for uh, almost a year now. The pandemic, you have to weigh and measure what exactly happened there. And we dismiss some of the things from the pandemic, but um, at the end of the day, this is going to do what it does and it's going to correct. And that's not to scare people there. It's you normal. Have, you have more opportunity if you're prepared in a challenging market than you ever do in a market like we're in now. That's why I'm considering taking out some loans, which I normally don't do. I've, I have no loans right now, but that's why I'm considering. I just got approval on about a half a million in loans that I'm going to take out uh, at a stupid low interest rate and, you know, on properties that are paid off anyways, but I'm going to use that just to beef up my cash even more, you know, go from a, a you know, low six figure, or I'm sorry, low seven figures to higher seven figures, you know, just to be able to have that much on the sidelines ready to execute. I mean, Warren Buffett, what does he have? I might be misquoting here, but 150 billion cash sitting around now on the sidelines or something. I mean, that guy's not an idiot. I mean, he's 91. He's still running one of the largest, uh, you know, capital firms on the planet, you know, they've obviously, I, I think he knows, you know, something about investing at this point. So, so we, we did this back in 2007 
Um, in 06 is when we started to see it. 07 is when we had that moment where it was like, okay, let's tie up some loose ends and let's pull back. Uh, and of course, we advised clients to do that. Some did, some didn't. Yeah. Uh, one point of caution uh, I, I want to share with the, the audience, because I got caught in this in 2008. I had done what I thought was right. I was very conservative. I didn't have mortgages in many places. So I went and I applied for lines of credit, right? The, because I knew that when it hit the fan, uh, cash would be king and there'd be a lot of opportunities there. Yeah. Uh, I, I took out several lines of credit, zero balance across them. And when the crash was in, when everyone kind of accepted that this actually was what was happening, the banks shut the lines of credit off. So this is a point of advice out there to people. If, if you've been conservative and you're responsible with debt um, and you have the discipline to leverage those lines of credit, uh, now's the time to do it in my estimation. Take the money out. Yeah. Take the money out. That's the, you know, you just, you know, and then keep all your accounts. If you really are a doomsdayer, like what we do is all my money, like, you know, seven figures that I have in cash, I separate it between every FDIC insured account. So there's limits per bank. You have about quarter million as FDIC insured. FDIC is the, I can't remember the acronym, federal, whatever, depository insurance commission. I don't, that's probably not even close, but anyways, it's a, this agency that uh, insures your money. So in the fact, in the event that your specific bank defaults, like many of them did in 2008, you're not just out the money, right? Cause you've got, so if you were to keep a million dollars in an FDIC insured account, you would lose 750 potentially. So we set, we spread them out among, you know, we have like nine different banks that we spread a quarter million, quarter million, quarter million out. And so that cash is all, we always, anytime it goes over 250 in a significant way, we'll move that money into another, you know, bank. And so that way we're, we have FDIC insurance on all the cash that's sitting there. I know that's super paranoid, but I just, I try to assume the worst because I mean, 2008 or 2007, everyone thought nothing would happen. And then 2008 comes and it's, you know, everyone was just blood in the streets. So I want to be ready. And I don't want any of my cash where they can get their grubby hands on it when things go south. So. It's not paranoid and by any measure. It's, it's being a realist and being smart and pragmatic. So right. um, again, folks don't, don't quite understand that that's a reality. If a bank closes and you've got significant cash in a bank, you may have a real tough time recapturing that money. So splitting yep. up and keeping it under the FDIC um, regulations for each individual lender is just good sense. Pull that money out of those lines of credit because I do think we're headed for, for a correction. I'm, I'm completely aligned with you there. Um, you know, it's tough to, to quantify what will it be this time, right? right. So, um, it, won't be the, it won't be the same thing. It's no. not going to be the same thing. That's for sure. See, CMBSs, which are different than RMBSs. RMBSs is what took us down in 2008. That's residential mortgage-backed securities. But CMBSs is commercial mortgage-backed securities. And they're doing the same shenanigans they did with the RMBSs, but now they're doing it in the CMBSs. And we saw that in a big study that came out about two months ago, where they reported that um, most of, or I'm sorry, there was a, too many of the underlying assets we're not meeting the criteria, just like happened with what happened in residential. So they're more likely to default. And this is on the big commercial. Now we just saw the stocks take a monster dive intraday today. 
because of the, you know, the, the retail sales reports that came out that were kind of underwhelming. While we did have the lower inflation reports that came out the other day, thank, thank goodness, right? They were lower than expected. Um, but that's all that's going to do is it's going to delay the Fed, uh, you know, increasing rates. And so there's probably not going to be a rate hike. And so we're, you know, the Fed has out of options if we have a downturn, you know, the, the interest rates are so low right now. Um, you know, there's no, you can't go any lower. So. And therein lies the question, right? So in, as you had said, in 2008, these were subprime mortgages on residential properties. Yep. People are buying real estate now. They're not buying real estate. They're buying payments, right? Because of the low interest rates, they're going into these tertiary markets. Yep. They're underwriting deals based on very limited historical records on rental payments, right? Yeah. And, and uh, prices have appreciated because of the lack of supply at just rates that don't make any kind of sense. And all of these mortgages uh, are tied to a short period of time before those rates start to adjust, right? Yep. So people get into it and they take a three-year or a five-year and they feel, well, you know, in, in three or five years, it'll be worth 20% more man, that, that's not what's happening here. And they're nope. buying in these markets where there's no sound fundamentals behind some of these acquisitions. Nope. And I think we're headed for a real correction on that side of things. Well, you saw what just happened to Bill Ackman, you know, Bill Ackman, Pershing Square Capital, one of the bigger investors, his SPAC that just came out was a special, I don't, I don't remember how you, what the SPAC stands for, but it's basically this giant, his was a $4 billion uh, capital raising program to bolster up a company and get ready for an investment. He was trying to merge, I think, a couple of different companies. And, you know, they the government just put a kibosh on the SPAC, but all these stupid investors, you know, just just throwing money at anything right now, just to, even if it doesn't make any sense, even if it's there's no, uh, like you said, there's no uh, underlying fundamentals. It's just silly. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting. The, the stimulus, uh, the second package, if you will, doesn't hit the ground and by the ground, I mean, 50% of that money has already hit many of the city's treasurer accounts, but it hasn't been deployed. It doesn't hmm. get start getting deployed until first quarter of next year. And they were very smart in how they laid this out. And the, the last deployment, if memory serves me, doesn't happen until 2025. Oh, so wow. that period of time when they're straddling midterms, they're straddling a presidential election, this cash will continue to flow into the markets. Mm. Uh, I'm real curious the impact the stimulus is going to have and what what happens now when rates go up as a nation. Can we afford the debt? Right? No, that, that's no, we can't. One. So if we can't afford the debt, do rates stay low? I, I, you know, what happens? We're in uncharted waters here. Uncharted is a, a great word because there's really two outcomes, right? Either one, the debt becomes, you know, when, when uh, you know, stuff hits the fan, the debt either gets foreclosed on, defaulted, and those rippling ramifications happen there. Companies shutter, you know, things happen. People lose their savings or more money is printed. And I think what we're seeing with the modern monetary theory, the MMT or the new 
um, you know, uh, money printing that's going on right now with their fiat currency, which is, again, hasn't been backed by anything for the last 50 years other than consumer confidence. And we'll see how long that stays in place. Um, if you look at, you know, uh, those two options, it seems like this administration, uh, even the previous one, I hate to say it, but, you know, they, they even went uh, toward the money printing uh, yeah. machine. And I do worry because if you look at the, you know, Weimar Republic or however you say it, Weimar Republic in Germany, uh, and they were having like 3000% inflation um, going on, and it, which is just unsustainable. If you look at Zimbabwe um, and what happened there or Venezuela, even modern day Venezuela, and look at what the Venezuelan uh, Bolivar is their dollar over there in Venezuela. The, go look and see how much the Bolivar is worth. Um, try to buy something with with a Bolivar. Good luck. You know what I mean? And so, um, you know, you have to, there's a some kind of a video I watched of a gentleman going through Caracas, uh, Venezuela, and he is going up to a hot dog vendor and saying, how much is it to buy a hot dog in, you know, Bolivars? And he said, the hot dog vendor said, basically about a, a few weeks worth of a normal workers' wages. We'll buy you one hot dog. So, that gives you an idea of the inflation problem they have over there. Now, it turns out that the inflation numbers weren't as bad as we were thinking. Um, that just got re released a couple of days ago, that report. And so the markets did stabilize out. But then as soon as that good report comes in, we just get this terrible, uh, you know, jobless report and, uh, uh, you know, uh, spending for retail sales. That report came in pretty terrible. So uh, intraday today, we had a about a, a half a you know a 50 point uh, dip on the Dow, um, which was pretty uh, you know half I'm sorry half a percent uh, dip on the Dow, which is pretty significant intraday. Um, you know I think that is that's paired off some of the uh, losses there. But you know you look at all this stuff and it is very worrying. So it's like what do you do? I mean do you go and just invest in a bunch of gold bars like Palantir, the big IPO'd company that just bought what 50 billion dollars worth of gold bars or something? I mean to me buying gold isn't going to help you in, in an, uh, because gold's even overpriced right now. Everything's overpriced. So you buy gold, you're still going to lose out. So I think, you know, fit hard assets, the day where they come in and repossess the average Americans, uh, you know, uh, I guess like property is the day that the whole thing's over anyways, right? So I think by holding real estate and real estate backed assets, I think that's a smart way. I think the US dollar has probably seen its best days for a while. Um, so holding a bunch of cash like I do can be a little scary, but I have to have it for purchasing power because sometimes even if inflation is 20%, I can make more than 20% of my cash, you know, so I can still beat inflation more than the average person can, so. So your the the rentals that you're amassing yep. are on the rent the residential side or commercial side? Residential. So I'm doing single families. I want things that most of my rentals are single. I have a couple of apartment buildings, but um, and I again my uh, you know future plans and even current uh, trajectory has been that I'm not adding any more rentals, but I am loaning. So I want I want uh, my cash tied up in property, but I don't want to be an owner of the property. Um, and so I just found that that's a much better, better for me to provide ancillary services and do private lending, um, and then have a bunch of paid off properties or, you know, close to paid off now, if I'm going to get these, uh, this new small loan package, but, um, the way I've seen it is single family is so easy to, to basically do dispositions on because everybody and their brother, if you look on your Facebook, uh, list of friends, right. How many people would be interested in at some point in their life buying a single family house? Most, right? Probably most have thought, oh yeah, it'd be nice to own a house. 
How many people have you thought would want to buy a uh, duplex or an apartment building? Way smaller number, right? So, I mean, if you look at where, who you can unload those things uh, to. So for me, it's been single family, but there is tons of money in apartments. There's tons of money in commercial real estate. You just have to be, um, you have to know exactly what you're doing and have some kind of a competitive advantage. Like someone such as yourself, you probably could smoke the average investor on apartments or multifamily, right? I mean, because you're better at it than most people, right? So, I mean. For, for us, the, the issue has become, uh, you're right, you need a competitive advantage, you need a, a disruptor. We're yep. using our experience and our knowledge, but we're also developing technology uh, and doing some, uh, some app stuff that is now grown into a, a full-blown technology company because uh, we believe that there's some safe, there's some safe space there. Oh, uh, yeah. But for, for us, legislative threats have become a massive, I mean, it, was, it wasn't even on the SWOT analysis 20 years ago. It didn't even appear. Now, legislative threats is top. It's number one. You know, the, the issue with, and the reason I think you saw um, Divco West and some of these huge funds start to follow the decentralization pattern and buying these single family homes in these secondary markets was because they wanted to get out of all of the regulation. So many of the benefits uh, from a tax perspective and from uh, the ability to take things and, and destabilize them that used to exist don't exist anymore. And as the society becomes more and more litigious, um, there's less and less incentive. It, let's face it, that's what it's about, right? Is, is the risk and reward. Is it worth the risk for us to take down and continue to take down apartment buildings? Is it right. worth the risk to continue to take down commercial assets? Um, and there's ways to hedge and there's ways to be smart about it, but you, you really have to be concerned legislatively about what's happening around you. You can't operate in a vacuum anymore. Nope. Um, this world has given us access to everything at our fingertips, right? And and I'm, I remain shocked how few people are taking advantage of that. You know, Blake, um, you're one of the very few people who I've spoken to that has this level of understanding. Thank you. What's happening around you? So I, I applaud you with what you're doing. Um, are you concerned about? legislative threats where you're based out of now? Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at uh, Illinois, for example, um, even the properties where we do ancillary services, like, you know, just kind of managing or whatever, any of the other properties that, um, you know, are in Illinois, we've got uh, several hundred, three or 400 properties that, you know, my staff looks after for, you know, friends of ours. And um, the eviction moratorium, while the federal moratorium has gone, the Governor Pritzker has legislated um, a state eviction moratorium still, still it's there. We're just now being able to start processing evictions. And some of these folks haven't paid rent since 2019, which is bananas. And this is now we're, you know, pushing 2022 here. So these are, you know, these are big problems in C areas, you know, or C class. Uh, I mean, even some of the higher ones. Um, so we're going in and, uh, you know, keeping abreast on that and making sure that we're, you know, all the grant monies are, uh, you know, applied for, for everybody that, you know, we're working with. But with that being said, um, the grant money didn't even, I mean, it didn't even come close. I mean, it, it probably didn't even scratch half of the rent that was owed. Um, and then all the, the uh, ensuing loss. 
during the time. So I was great because I pivoted out, you know, and I pivoted out of all this stuff right when COVID hit. So I, that was right around the time when I sold 200 of my 320 units and paid off the rest of them. And the ones that I paid off were all pretty turnkey and most people were paying rent. So for me, I didn't really get hit hard. Um, but the folks that did were the ones that were super leveraged in C-class areas in blue states, you know, states like Illinois, where the eviction moratoriums, you know, basically said anyone who doesn't feel like paying rents from 2019, end of 2019 to, uh, to now, you're good to go. And so that's tough on a mom and pop landlord. So that's one area of legislation that I'm worried about. And that's kind of on a state level. But some of the other areas of legislation that I'm worried about is these uh, groups that are advocating for ending private property rights. Um, now, this is down the road, down the pike, but, you know, there's kind of this attitude, this, this general unrest that I'm feeling in the United States right now and across the world where, you know, people, the have nots are starting to look at the haves and going, hey, wait a second. Uh, why do we, you know, why don't we own the important properties? Why do they own the properties? They're looking at the fat cat landlords and the property owners and say, and what they don't realize is how much expense and how many jobs we provide and the expense ratios. We're getting hit on all angles. We're getting hit from the tenants not paying. We're getting hit from the, uh, you know, the local municipalities doing code violations. And then we're getting hit from taxes and we're getting hit from the banks, you know, so we're getting squeezed out. Um, as landlords. So yeah, legislatively, absolutely, I do worry. And there's tons of other legislative things I worry about too. What about you? What are some of the things that you worry about legislatively? Yeah, um, um, we, we talked about this a while ago. And, and unfortunately, we're seeing it come to bear. But um, good cause eviction, uh, Albany Commons City Council uh, passed good cause eviction, which essentially says that if you if you don't follow certain criteria in your lease, uh, and you get to the end of a term and you don't uh, renew or you don't get people out. And, you know, we do this all the time. People in the business, when you have good tenants, you don't raise the rents, right? You work with your tenants and, right. and you do what you can uh, for everybody. And what they've basically put in there is uh, good cause eviction. You'll have to go to court with, even if they don't have a lease, you can't get your tenants out, period can't get them out. So I, I know that that isn't registering for a minute because it sounds completely insane. So if I had a tenant in and they've been there for five years and the lease lapsed and I just want to get them out to sell the home or to renovate the home or to move into the home, can't get your tenants out anymore. You have to have a good cause and go to court. If a tenant complains about a repair, the city can now send their contractor in, good luck with that though, and do renovations and bill you back as the owner. And of course, uh, that contractor is going to cost three times as much as what you could have got it done for us or more. Um, we have coming up for debate in city council Friday. Uh, they are proposing commercial rent control <laughs> in New York City. Well, that's and the problem is they don't understand that what's or maybe they do and they don't care, but the landlord can only get squeezed on so many areas before this. It's just not profitable anymore. And if you want to see a true economic collapse, make it not profitable to rent. And yep. you will see, you will see a rent crisis like you have never seen before because no one will want to be landlords. Everyone will just either Airbnb their units or they'll just sell to homeowners or sell on contract. Right. Yep. Um, and that's it. That's all they're going to do. They're not going to want to rent, and they're certainly not going to want to rent to C-class 
individuals who they think are a high risk. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be this massive housing crisis. And then I predict that many years in the future, hopefully this doesn't happen soon and across the U.S., but the, the government will step in and they'll say, well, you know, capitalism didn't work for, you know, for rentals. So the government needs to step in and anyone who owns more than, you know, five houses, uh, the government's going to seize the property. I mean, this is way down the, the road because they're not going to be able to get away with this anytime soon. But I mean, I see the writing on the wall. I mean, I see where this is headed. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's super scary, scary for my business too, because uh, not so much from the lending. I mean, yeah, from the lending standpoint too, but I'm into it for so low on each property that by the time, if it hit, if it starts hitting me, that means the whole country is underwater. Right. Yeah. But so, I'm sorry to interrupt you there. Oh, Your 50% LTVs is, yeah. I circled it. Right. Like when you said 50%, I said right away. Okay. Yep. He knows exactly where the score is here. Um, Cause we're putting together a fund for defaulted notes. I think that's where there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the coming years. Uh, so we're putting that the framework together now, but when you're leveraged at 50%, uh, like you said, if we get to that threshold, it doesn't matter. Literally, it sincerely doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, once you get to that threshold, even if you had gold, you're going to be screwed. You know yeah. what I mean? It's uh, pe people don't realize they're like, oh, yeah, but I'm just going to buy gold bars. Yeah, but look at what the price of gold is right now. I mean, that price is going to fall too. You know what I mean? You think the average person on the street, what are they going to pay you for with a gold? I mean, deflated currency, you're not going to want that currency anyways at that point. So it's like, what are you going to trade a gold bar for food if we get that? you know, dire if things get that dire and, you know, it's cannibalism and all kinds of craziness, you know, what I don't, I'm, believe me, this is way out there. I don't think that's going to happen, but if it did get to that level, gold is not going to save you and you lose money buying and selling gold all the time. Every time you buy a piece, a uh, gold bar, you lose money. Every time you sell a gold bar, you lose money, assuming just from the transaction costs, it's like real estate. You're going to pay a realtor. You're going to pay, but in gold, you're paying the, you know, the, uh, the, the, person who gets the, you know, uh, does all the smelting and, you know, all the different things. Um, I wish I knew more about that process. I don't, I'm probably butchering it, but, um, you know, I've looked at all the hedges and all the possible alternatives and I don't think stocks will save you. The people say, oh, well, if you're worried about that, just invest in good companies and stocks. Yeah. But just like landlords, these good companies are getting pushed in, like you said, legislatively, um, on all angles. I mean, they own buildings too. They own, you know, they have workers and they got to deal with unions and they got to deal with this other stuff. So again, if, if you make things unprofitable, it will crash because people will just not participate anymore. So if, 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 if people will say, oh, rent's too high, you know, let's do a rent control. And then half the landlords just fire sale the properties and disappear. I mean, or, or don't sell the properties, just let them go, get, let them get dilapidated. Um, you know, that can cause a major um, issue because now is the city going to come in and fix those properties? I, they can't afford to, they, they, you know, they think they can, but if they don't get paid back, I mean, just the amount of money that you would spend. I remember on when we had like 320 units, I was spending like a hundred thousand minimum per month on maintenance. Yeah. You know what I mean? A hundred thousand yeah. a month on maintenance government doesn't have that kind of money. They can't print enough money to cover all that maintenance. There's no way. Um, that's on 300 units. You imagine, you know, 300,000, you know, 3 million units. I mean, they just, they don't have the money to do it, especially if they're not collecting rent. And if they're paying for the people's rent too, that's why we have private property because landlords are willing to sacrifice things that a government worker may not be willing to do. So. Yeah. So you know, it's a sin because so much of the legislation is well intended, but yep. they make examples out of the bad actors 
Yep. And then the, the people like us that stay on the right side of right, we immediately pull back, right? We, we just yep. don't want to get caught in the foray. So we, we pull back. And, and when you start losing us, it becomes problematic. And, and anyone who's an advocate for government owning properties, just go take a look at any one of the government owned uh, housing complexes in New York City. And you'll get a real quick dose of, of the difference between the private sector and, and government run buildings. And I'm not, uh, I'm not saying landlords are perfect because there's enough, enough bad ones that right. all a bad name, but there is a balance. There is a right way to do things. Uh, and there is a way to keep things moving the way they should. And they organically naturally should go through their process without, yeah. like you said, forcing, if, if you're going to create rent control for commercial or for any asset class for that matter, are you going to cap municipal charges? Right. Water and sewer in New York have gone up 5% a year for the yeah. last 10 years in a row. That's a 50% increase. You can't keep up. They wonder why rent is going up, cost of labor, your yeah. new charges, um, violations and ticketing. It, it's tough. It's not I predict, easy. I predict that what could happen is we could have this perfect storm where if the, if the scales in certain states I think it'll start at the state level first because in Iowa, it's still very profitable to be a landlord, but in Illinois, which I'm right on the border of both. And I own, you know, own stuff in both do, you know, ancillary services for, you know, tons of properties in both in those areas in Illinois, it's, it's almost not profitable. It's almost not profitable. I mean, it still is, but, um, and here, this is for guys who have bank loans, right? If you've got loans against the properties, you want to see some real chaos, make it not profitable with no bank loans on the properties. Then you're going to see when it's a negative cap rate, when you start seeing negative cap rates on, um, you know, which, again, I don't think this stuff's going to happen in, in the near future, but unfortunately this is like the spirit of America and the, the way that p the progressive nature of the things are moving. Um, you know, people, they just, they don't care how it gets done. They just say, hey, my rent's too high. I don't care how it gets lowered. Let's just put a rent cap. And they say, hey, my landlord didn't fix my stuff. And But they don't, you know, they don't see that we're, we're given the parameters we have. We're doing the best we can, right? So. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's going to be an interesting, interesting few years. Uh, but again, I, I believe that there will be unprecedented opportunity between the lines. And, you know, those that are, are, are you know, disciplined and delayed gratification is, is some of their core core principles and they've put themselves in the right spot they'll they'll find opportunity you know they always seem to so yeah. uh, you, you scaled pretty quick you, you've got yep. quite an operation going on here any any books that that were of yeah. influence or any tips you can you can offer to the audience yeah I'll give you a few books um, there was a, there's a I mean some of these are more generic books but let me start with one that's really specific there's called one is called uh, my life in a thousand houses by Mitch Steven. That's a really good book. I love that book. Actually, uh, I've listened to a few podcasts and other people talk about that book too. Um, it's just this very like grassroots, you know, shoestring budget kind of book on how to, you know, just kind of find the bargain properties and like do really well with that kind of thing for so for scaling for, um, you know, uh, acquiring units, letting people know you're in the space, uh, sourcing buyers for your stuff. It's a really good book. Um, I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, more of a general book, though, like The Richest Man in Babylon was a good book just for kind of overall uh, mindset and philosophy. That was a good one. Um, right now, I'm reading a book by uh, Carly Fiorina. Uh, who was a Republican candidate for president and uh, talking about her 
you know, struggles with uh, being a CEO of HP and, you know, moving up through her ranks at AT AT&T. So like, I read a very eclectic uh, range of books, anything that just helps me understand how the world works a little more, even if it's not directly real estate, like the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the uh, founder of Nike. That was a great book. I loved that book. Just it talks about being a CEO and all the problems they have to deal with and things they have to overcome. And there's always little nuggets you could pull out of those books and take back to your own business. So Without a doubt. Uh, appreciate you sharing that with us. Of course. Uh, what's the best way for folks to, to get a hold of the company? Yeah. So uh, on my hat here, selbyrentals.com is my um, website. That's got all my contact info, you know, uh, YouTube channel. We've got like little fun videos we put out for free, just free stuff. We don't charge anything for, um, you know, education, but you know, so that's, and then you can submit uh, loan deals. If you want to get our financing or funding, you can, uh, we have a little deal submission thing on there. So we kind of have it all in one spot, which is nice. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate your insights today. Yeah, you Folks, too. I hope you, you listened up because Blake hit on some real, real nuggets here today. Some real valuable information. Yeah, we went deep, didn't we? We got, we got pretty deep on this one. <laughs> yeah, you're a definite callback after guy. You know, I, I have a yeah. lot of things I'd love to run past you. So we'll yeah. be reaching out. That sounds fun. All right, man. Thanks for the time. Thank, thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care, Blake. You too now. As always, everybody out there, please stay safe. 